and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And I promise that I won't take you hostage. Even if I am your biggest fan. Big promise. Big promise? What's that mean? Oh, did she say that a bunch? That might have been one of her weird... Hi, this week we watched Misery from 1990. Directed by Rob Reiner. Starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. And written screenplay by William Goldman. Big, big names in this week's episode. Oh, yeah, and the the supporting cast is really big, too. It's true, and we will get into it. But first, I'm asking a loaded question. How was your week? Um, I had a very interesting week, and I'm almost tempted just to leave it at that. That's fair. It was a very interesting... Today's been a doozy. Right. And that's where we will leave it. So how was your week? Aside you know, from today. Other than today, it was yes. good. It was fine. I'm crafting a whole bunch and also doing podcast editing things. We have gotten through the worst of, I think, a really hot week. It was very warm this week right. here in Oakland, California. It was in the 90s. Every day. At the peak of it, yeah. And in a house whose windows don't open. Mm-mm. That's great in the morning and terrible at night. I had to sleep with a fan on all night. Same. Because made my was, mouth so dry. Oh, yeah. I woke up in the morning <laughs> kind of like, num, num, num. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was it was something to get through. And then I think it was really yesterday the fog finally rolled in. Yeah. And the weather came down significantly. Yeah, I think it was 15 degrees cooler today than yeah. it was yesterday. Which so. I'm really happy for. Yay! Keeping on our boats. It's going to be 70s for the next week, and that is perfect. That is absolutely right. That's why you live in Oakland. Yes. On this side of the hill, closer to the ocean. I like it. It's good. Although, I've, I've heard that San Francisco weather was actually really tolerable last week, Well, too. San Francisco never, well, very rarely gets very, very hot. Right. Which is good, because that's a bunch of walk-ups. And hills. Very steep hills. <laughs> I visited North Beach and I had to stop every block and take a breath and then go up another hill and another hill and I thought, oh, it'll end and it never It did. never ends. No. <laughs> it never does. All right. Do you want to get into this Yes, I do. Movie? I do. How did you feel about it? I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. I want to open... Well... Let's start with the sentence introduction, and then I'd like to read some from the book. Okay. So, our one-sentence overview from IMDb is... All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing. I just cannot get through my thick head. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels... He comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. That's pretty dead on. That's pretty good. Uh, Our star, our Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan. He is the writer in question. Kathy Bates, playing Annie Wilkes, is the fan in question. Uh, And then we have everybody's favorite, at least my favorite, Richard Farnsworth plays the town sheriff. And is it Lauren Bacall? Yes, Plays uh, Paul's concerned but distant agent. 
literary agents. Right. I believe she is in New York, and everyone else is in Colorado. Sidewinder, Colorado from the books, but outside of Denver in a little town. A little town. All right, let me do a little bit of building of Annie from the book. Sure. The, the story opens with him with from a close third person on Paul Sheldon, and he's in a lot of pain, and he's in and out of consciousness, and he doesn't quite know what's happening. So we get some short paragraphs right at the beginning uh, in the part one that's called Annie. Right at the very beginning, in page or in chapter two, he says, or quote from the book, his first really clear memory of this now, the now outside the storm haze, was of stopping, of being suddenly aware he just couldn't pull another breath, and that was all right, that was good, that was in fact just peachy keen. He could take a certain level of pain, but enough was enough, and he was glad to be getting out of the game. Then there was a mouth clamped over his, a mouth which was unmistakably a woman's mouth in spite of its hard, spitless lips. And the wind from this woman's mouth blew into his own mouth and down his throat, puffing his lungs. And when the lips were pulled back, he smelled his warder for the first time, smelled her on the outrush of the breath she had forced into him, the way a man might force a part of himself into an unwilling woman. A dreadful mixed stench of vanilla cookies and chocolate ice cream and chicken gravy and peanut butter fudge. So that's... The first image is him being raped by peanut butter fudge? Yes. All right. So not great. I missed that rape uh, indication right. uh, the first time I skimmed through it. So, but he, he, and he finds the smell of her vial, that... Right. Vanilla cookie, chocolate ice cream, chicken gravy, and peanut butter fudge, which is a wild combination, but sounds kind Mostly of good. Mostly dessert, I guess. Yes. If you cut out the gravy, I'm almost on board. And then a couple of chapters later, this is from chapter four. That prescient part of his mind saw her before he knew he was seeing her and must surely have understood her before he knew he was understanding her. Why else did he associate such dour, ominous images with her? Whenever she came into the room, he thought of the graven images worshipped by the superstitious African tribes in the novels of H. Ryder Haggard and Stones and Doom. The image of Annie Wilkes as an African idol out of she or King Solomon's minds was both ludicrous and queerly apt. She was a big woman who, other than the large but unwelcoming swell of her bosom, under the gray cardigan sweater she always wore, seemed to have no feminine curves at all. There was no defined roundness of hip or buttock or even calf below the endless succession of wool skirts she wore in the house. She retired to her unseen bedroom to put on jeans before doing her outside chores. Her body was big but not generous. There was a feeling about her of clots and roadblocks, rather than welcoming orifices or even open spaces, areas of hiatus. Most of all, she gave him a disturbing sense of solidity, as if she might not have any blood vessels or even internal organs, as if she might only be solid Annie Wilkes from side to side and top to bottom. She, he felt more and more convinced that her eyes, which appeared to move, were actually just painted on, and they moved no more than the eyes of portraits which appear to follow you to whatever, wherever you move in the room where they hang it. It seemed to him 
that if he made the first two fingers of his hand into a V and attempted to poke them up her nostrils, they might go less than an eighth of an inch before encountering a solid, if slightly yielding, obstruction, that even her gray cardigan and frumpy house skirts and faded outside work jeans were part of that solid, fibrous, unchanneled body. So his feeling that she was like an idol in a perfervid novel was not really surprising at all. Like an idol, she gave only one thing, a feeling of unease, deepening steadily towards terror. Like an idol, she took everything else. No, wait, that wasn't quite fair. She did give something else. She gave him the pills that brought the tide in over the pilings. The pills were the tide. Annie Wilkes was the lunar presence which pulled them into his mouth like jetsam on a wave. She brought him to every six hours, first announcing her presence only as a pair of fingers poking into his mouth, and soon enough he learned to suck eagerly at those poking fingers in spite of the bitter taste, later appearing in her cardigan sweater and one of her half-dozen skirts, usually with a paperback copy of one of his novels tucked under her arm. At night she appeared to him in a fuzzy pink robe, her face shiny with some sort of cream. He could have named the main ingredient even easily enough, even though he'd never seen the bottle from which she tipped it. The sheepy smell of the lanolin was strong and proclamatory. Shaking him out of his frowsy, dream-thick sleep with the pills nestled in her hand and the poxy moon nestled in the window over one of her solid shoulders. After a while, after his alarm had become too great to be ignored, he was able to find out what she was feeding him. It was a painkill with a heavy codeine base called Novril. The reason she had to bring him the bedpan so infrequently was not only because he was on a diet consisting entirely of liquids and gelatins. Earlier, when he was on, a, on the cloud, she fed him intravenously. But also because Novril had a tendency to cause constipation in patients taking it. Another side effect, a rather more serious one, was respiratory depression in sensitive patients. Paul was not particularly sensitive, even though he had been a heavy smoker for nearly 18 years, but his breathing had stopped nonetheless on at least one occasion. There might have been others in the haze that he did not remember. That was the time she gave him mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. It might have just been one of those things which happened, but he later came to suspect she had nearly killed him with an accidental overdose. She didn't know as much about what she was doing as she believed she did. That was only one of the things about Annie that scared him. He discovered three things almost simultaneously about ten days after having emerged from the dark cloud. The first was that Annie Wilkes had a great deal of Novrel. She had, in fact, a great many drugs of all kinds. The second was that he was hooked on Novrel. The third was that Annie Wilkes was dangerously crazy. So how do you feel about that description? So... I like the way it's written, however. Yes. If a woman mm -hmm. doesn't have orifices in which you want to put parts of your body, apparently she's terrifying and horrible. Now, <laughs> like, that's the part that it struck me as you were reading it just now. Mm -hmm. Both she and King Solomon's minds don't have stone idols. I've read them both. Oh, that's so funny. I, I'm just wondering if that was that... I mean, there are stone idols in other Ryder Haggard novels, um, but they're not particularly like great objects of worship. However, I would say that um, if you're going to bring up this subject matter and you want to bring a up this A yellow god, an idol of Africa, seems right. a good option. 
the yellow god. But I think that um, what, yeah, it's just you would bring up the most popular novels H. Ryder Haggard wrote and sort of reference that to reference him to mm-hmm. people who only are familiar. Oh, yeah, King Solomon's Mines. Um, I It does sound like the opposite, like an inversion of the kind of description of women that you get in like an Ian Fleming novel. Right. Where they're all high cheekbones and generous bosoms and hips and, yeah, it's like he almost inverted that kind of description. It also feels a little, like, this is ten less than ten pages into the novel. Uh-huh. So we're given no chance to think he has a savior. Right. And then have a twist given to us. Yeah. We are introduced with which She's is monstrous right. and crazy. That's the improvement of the film, I think, is that we don't know until a little bit later on that she's not his savior. I would agree with that. Um, so the book was released in 1987. Mm-hmm. The movie came out in 1990. The, the rights must have been purchased immediately. Right. And, um, you know, Rob Reiner directed Stand By Me and and is on this one as well. Uh, and I think that the casting of Kathy Bates is very, very, very smart uh-huh. because she can be nurturing and terrifying at turns. So, yeah, that. So do you want to get into the plots? Well... Or do you have more to I'm say? I'm curious about the casting of her. Um, was it Kathy Bates cast? Yeah, it was Goldman who suggested Kathy Bates. But I'm looking at the list of other actors who might have played okay. the character, who apparently, I don't know, you've read the quote from Stephen King about this film, the time he references it in his book. In my early 1980s, my wife and I went to London on a combined business pleasure trip. I fell asleep on a plane and had a dream about a popular writer. It may, may or not, it may or may have not been me, but it sure to God wasn't James Kahn. Right. So I'm not sure that's saying that he did not like Kahn in the part. Um, I'm looking at the list of actors who might have done it. That it was offered to William Hurt twice, Kevin Kline, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gina Hackman, and Robert Redford. Not a hundred percent of equaling men better looking than James Caan, uh-huh. but I would say a good ninety percent of those listed are better looking to my eye. I'm mm-hmm. being very, you know, subjective here. Than James Caan. I'm, and and Warren Beatty was very interested in the part, but um, he had to drop out in tr- post-production because he was doing Dick Tracy. I was going to say, is this Dick Tracy time? This is Dick yeah, Tracy Yeah, so time. I think that, and, and again, when that we did... Mid- Midler turned down the role of Annie, that's which weird. would have been... A little bit too much. Wild. She right. thought it was too violent. <laughs> She's not wrong. So... I'm thinking that one of the issues I have is I'm not really a big fan of James Caan. We talked about that in The Godfather. I I would have loved to have seen Harrison Ford in it. That I don't know why. He's a very solid kind of down-to-earth person who's 
even as a, a villain, he's kind of likable and grumpy, and I think he would have carried off a lot of the the recovery parts, if you've ever seen Regarding Henry, where he plays a, a man who's recovering after being shot in a yes. liquor store holdup. He was eerily on point with showing a man coming out of recovery, and I didn't really get a lot of that from James Caan. I wonder if the fact that James Caan is not physically a big guy helped in the playing of the part. I think that's probably Because right. I look at Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus. Those are all small. These are all smaller guys, guys and it makes yeah. more sense that between that and being injured, that she comes across as bigger than she is. She's Kathy also, Bates is not a big person. She's not, but she's she is solidly Solid. built. Right. Uh, now, I, I find I that part of the description that, interesting, the kind of idea that she is just, to him, a solid just a object mass, right. right that that part was interesting i'm not really on board with the whole kind of as you pointed out she doesn't have welcoming orifices therefore she's therefore not she's not a woman one. yeah it's uh it's not cute that's problematic uh but i guess i'm seeing angelica houston uh-huh. who would have been really interesting jessica lang uh i think both of these women uh-huh. are too slight for right. what we need this character and to Jessica physically Houston's be very tall, do. though. That could have worked better. Jessica Lange is, is petite and fine-boned, and I don't think that she necessarily could have carried that out. Mary Tyler Moore wanted the role. That would have been really interesting, yeah. I think. It's one of those missed opportunities. I think I mentioned that to you, that but, up until the moment that uh, John Cassavetes got the part in Rosemary's Baby, it was Robert Redford's part. And rather than John Cassavetes, who has kind of a twinkle of mischief in his eye, Robert Redford's kind of very all-American, you know, Midwestern good look kind of thing that he carried off would have made, would have brought an element of narcissism to this guy who sells his soul to the devil or sells his wife to the devil, effectively. Uh-huh. That would have worked really, really well. And as much as I love Rosemary's Baby as a film now, I'm going, Robert Redford would have really added just that extra nasty twist to that part. Like, he's so vain and so entitled. Robert Redford would have been interesting. I would have liked to see uh, Richard Dreyfuss. I Mm. like Richard Dreyfuss a lot, and I'm sad that he has not been in more things. Uh Jeff Daniels would also have been, um, especially at this time, an interesting option. Um, Now, we do want to say, all of these casting notes um, aside... This movie was nominated for one Oscar. That Uh Oscar was for Kathy Bates, and she won it. She is the first woman to win an Oscar for a horror movie role. So so that predates Silence of the Lambs? mm Mm-hmm. Silence of the Lambs was 91. Uh, So, you know, we can say all that we want to say, but it turns out it's Kathy Bates. And if y'all have seen American Horror Story, Kathy Bates is really... She did turned really, up her horror schlock right. that too. She really did an I remember seeing her very early on. This is after Fried Green Tomatoes, and I think it might have been after at Play in the Fields of the Lord. Um, which was an adaptation of a Peter Matheson novel, where she plays Aidan Quinn's a missionary wife who loses her shit in the jungle. And it was with that performance, she's making an appearance on Arsenio Hall, and she talked about making this film mm-hmm. and how she was, well, in that interview, concerned about doing it because, again, this is your public debut, and this is what people are going to see you as mm. for the rest of your life. Mm. 
And so it became kind of like, okay, this is weird. And of course, based on the character that she has to play the description of the book, it's a weird one for an actor's vanity to go into it going, the book says I'm hideously unattractive and now I'm going to have to... Yeah, I'm so glad you've given me this part. Right. Like... And I remember the actress who plays... Uh, is it Imelda Staunton? In uh, the Harry Potter film, where she plays... Oh, um, the Lady in Pink. Right. Dolores Umbridge. Yes. Which is a great name. Um, she said something similar, like when she read the description of the book of this horrible toad-like woman, you know, with gobbets and horrible staring eyes, she thought, oh, Jesus, is that supposed to be me? Like, it was a real slap to her vanity at first to go, that, you know, that's the part you thought of when you thought of casting me. But uh, but she really does an amazing job here. Because yeah. Annie Wilkes, at turns, is sympathetic. Yeah. At other turns, she's hysterical and violent. She has to carry out a lot of stuff in this part. We can remember James Caan in The Godfather running people's heads into fire hydrants. And she has to come across as the woman that is terrifying that man. Yes. So it, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a lot to ask her to do. You know, she was in Dick Tracy. Really? She was Mrs. Green. That means literally nothing to I me. I can't remember her in that She's part. in this, and then the next year, she's in Fried Green Tomatoes, uh-huh. which gives a nice rounding out of what her right. capabilities are, and I think that one-two punch leads to the... So was At Play in the Fields Lord after that, I think? Um... And the reason why her vanity was discussed there is that she has a scene when she loses her marbles that she runs around stark naked, covered in mud. What's it called? Uh, I think it's At Play in the Fields of the Lord. It's a very long title. At Play... Here. Yes, 1991. Okay. It came out right before Fried Green Tomatoes. Uh, Yeah. And then we will see her again. Uh She's uncredited in The Stand. Okay. I think she plays somebody's mom who dies. Spoiler yeah, that, alert. That was a very interesting People interview. People die in the stand. <laughs> she also talked about how the fleetingness of fame and getting it at this point in her life and her career and told a really interesting story about knowing when not to take fame seriously when you get it all of a sudden. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody asked for her signature and not a few hours later she found the same piece of paper that she wrote her signature on crumpled and Lying. She thought it was somebody else. They thought it was somebody yeah, else. Yeah, probably. And so it was just like the the understanding, oh, this is all temporary and not to take fame as any indicator of talent or what's, you know. Well, I mean, direction. yeah, especially now when people mm-hmm. see people getting selfies with somebody, they want to get selfies with them right. even if they don't know who yeah. that somebody is. Um, the other thing we will see her in, which she does, is credited as Dolores Claiborne playing the titular. Dolores Claiborne. Dolores Claiborne. Which is a film I've never seen. I'm looking forward to that one because I've heard it's also a heavy dramatic part. Yes. So, before we get into all of that, let's get into the plot of this film. It's very slight. Excuse me. It is pretty slight. It is almost a Mm -hmm. two-person situation, which led to a play later, which we will talk about after we go through the movie. Okay. So, we've got famed novelist Paul Sheldon author of a series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character called Misery Chastain, Uh. which is where the name of the movie comes from. Uh, It's a 
double to triple entendre, but that's definitely one of the entendre. I don't know. What Very the, good. I don't know. Is that right? That deserves to be a word. <laughs> um, and he wants to focus on more serious stories. So his most recent release, which has come out like as the beginning of the movie is starting, he has killed off Misery Chastain. And he has just finished writing a book that is untitled in the movie. In the in the book, it's called Fast Cars, mm-hmm. and it's a noir detective story. I like that. Uh, but in this, we don't have a title for it. So he's he writes in this lodge in uh, called Silver Creek Lodge in Silver Creek, Colorado. Because right. let's keep it simple. Keep it simple. He's going to drive home. He's finished it. He has one cigarette. He drinks some Dom Perignon, and then he gets in his Ford Mustang, his 66 Mustang, and drives into a blizzard because he's a fucking moron. <laughs> that, yes. I was, yeah, we were watching and going, that, that, that's such a bad idea. I mean, like, going into this movie, you know what's going to happen. So you know he's going to be in a car accident. Right. But upon starting this movie, I'm like, this motherfucker deserves to be in a car accident because he is driving unsafely in a vehicle that is not prepared for this. Right. No chains, no nothing. No chains, no nothing. Just driving down this mountain in a a blizzard. And yes, he had at least one glass of wine or, you know, Champagne. champagne. So his car goes off the road. He is, uh, knocked unconscious. And then we see, uh, Annie Wilkes. Uh We don't know who she is yet. Prying him out of his vehicle, giving him mouth to mouth, grabbing his um, attache case, right, and then taking him. An attache sounds too glamorous for his beaten up. It's a beaten up leather. Secondhand. He bought a secondhand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, case, case with his manuscript. In with it. the manuscript in it. So Paul wakes up, finds himself. He's bedridden. Both of his legs have been broken, and compound fractures. I think of both of them. Right. Dislocated shoulder. We don't know how long time, how how much time has passed, but with that significant of injuries, right, and knowing that she is likely feeding him drugs, it's probably been a while. She says she's his number one fan, and then talks a lot about his novels. And the whole time he's doing that smile that doesn't meet his eyes, yeah. trying to like appease her because he is. Like, he cannot move. His legs are very broken. His shoulder is very hurt. He is at this woman's disposal. Also, I, it's got to be disconcerting to come to in a stranger's home, knowing that your junk at some point has been fully on display, because... Well, also, the fact that he... I mean, you have a... Like, your bedpan changes up. Part later on in the film where he's using um, like a urine jug, right? And portable urine. She's having a conversation with him the whole time, so he has absolutely no privacy no. or dignity left over. He's just sort of at the mercy of this person and dependent on her for everything. Yeah. So uh, Paul says, "Oh, you can read the new book." She asks what it's about, and he says, "I don't even know. I've been writing misery novels for so long." That I don't even know what this is about, but maybe you could tell me what it's about, and you could tell maybe n- give it a name. Right. 
And he is like, and she comes back later that day with soup to feed him. And she says she doesn't care for this new novel because of all the swearing. Now, something that we should point out, she seems to be some kind of religious fanatic. It's unclear. She wanders around with a cross around her neck the whole time. She um, is really bothered by his use of language. And she believes that she's personally on a mission from God. And this is something God has put me or God has put you in my way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's an element of of a kind of a isolated, backwards religious fanaticism, and we later on find out that there was a much more sinister use yes, for this. Yes, yeah, yeah, we'll get particularly there. Particularly in terms of life and death. Yes. Yeah, we'll get there. So, mean, so she spills soup on him, um, but apologizes that it was an accident, but it mm-hmm. was not an accident. Uh, and then Annie comes back from the store mm-hmm. with the latest Misery novel, which in which he has killed Misery. She flies into a rage when she reads that Misery, her favorite character, has died. Uh, and then it's like, so uh, I never called anybody to tell you, tell them where you were. Uh, and I'm not, right. so no one's going to come looking for you. So you're fucked. And then she locks him in this room. And she doesn't say he's fucked because she does not swear. Cocker duty. Uh, I'm not sure all the other words that she uses. There's lots of weird... Kind of um, faux faux right. swearing, yeah. Um, the next morning, she brings in a uh, like kettle grill uh-huh. and forces Paul to burn his manuscript because she squirts a bunch of lighter fluid on the manuscript and then also on him in the bed. And it's like, well, you better light that match because if I have to light the match, who knows where it's going to end up. Right. Well, so she's willing to make her favorite author a burnt offering. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then later, we we don't really have a concept of time. Right. So later, uh, one day, Annie is away, and Paul starts stockpiling his painkillers. Now, they don't really go into the painkillers as much uh-huh. in the movie as they do in the book. In the book, it is clear that he is addicted to these codeine pills. Did you feel like there was a scene missing? Maybe. Because there's a scene later on in the film where he, <clears throat> excuse me, where he painfully admits that he's waiting for her to come back because she's going to give him the pills. That's his excuse for the first time he leaves his room and forges around. And I felt like if there, if it's a given to her that he needs her to administer the pain pills, it's almost as if there was a scene missing earlier that established that he was addicted by this point. And now that you're telling me that's a big element of the book. It's that like, is. I don't think so. I, he's, mm-hmm. He does that. And right. I don't know if we... It's it's actually like right Right. It's now. just after this, I guess. Um, so he, he starts stockpiling his pills and he tries to poison her. He invites mm-hmm. her to a candlelight dinner with wine and tries to... And, and puts a bunch of the paint... The, powder from the pills because they're like gel caps right. into the wine and then she spills it so he is foiled later he gets out again and finds a bunch of the pills it might have been right before that he right. finds a bunch of the pills and he's tucked them in the front of his pants but she comes home before he can like hide them and he she goes to move him to the bed from the wheelchair that he's in uh, and he like 
begs her for the medicine right. to get her out of the room That's so what he gave can the tuck it away. Like, well, I, we weren't set up for how desperately he would need the pills that he would sit there crying. No, but I think he also was, because she was She's, gone she and had... She mashed his legs right before she left the room. And this was, I think, because of the complaint about the kind of paper that... Yes. Um, so I thought maybe that's what they they were making reference to that, but you I know, think again. that was part of it. Right. And also, she feels bad because she had locked him in the room and uh-huh. then left. Right. And he doesn't know that he'd gotten out, and so he's trying to play on that little bit of her feeling bad for her actions right. while he can, and also he needs to keep her away from him because he's got these pills, and if right. she finds him with them. It's going to be a fucking problem. Uh, so Annie has bought him paper and a typewriter because she wants him to write another misery novel and bring her back to life. Now, she makes him do it a few times because she needs it to be believable. He killed the main character and she has been buried. Right. <laughs> and you can't, and she won't let him like do. Uh, what she she tells the story of the cliffhangers in the movies, which she's a little young. Her character is a little bit young. Annie Wilkes wouldn't be. Kathy Bates is a little young to right. have been around when this was a thing. Unless they were redone or they were reshown. I think. I mean, I saw them on television as a kid, so I. I yeah, but this was definitely being in a theater. Going to a theater, wherein right. um, these adventure stories would go week to week. Right. And there was a cliffhanger at the end and then the next week they'd pick up. Well, in this one, the train carrying Rocket Man, I think, was her it favorite been, one. Right. Uh, the train had exploded and gone off the rails. And then it was like, next week, you see what happens next week. And the next week, he jumps free before the explosion and she's like, that's not what happened. That's not what we all saw last week. And she stands up in the middle of the theater apparently and starts screaming about the lack of continuity. And so she won't, like, she makes him keep restarting this book because Ian didn't get the letter on time Mm. to the doctor because we know that X, Y, and Z happened in this book. Like, you put out this thing so you have to come up with well, that's kind of, and we both know of a person like this fairly well who just can't let things go. I don't know who we're talking about. One of our coworkers. Oh, okay. A I, person who just like digs their fingers in and cannot let go of something. But in this case, she just wants continuity. You mm-hmm. wrote what you wrote. Right. And I'm like, well, if you want continuity, then misery is dead. Right. The bitch be dead. The end. Like, that's your continuity. But... You 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 can't settle for that, and you won't allow for a fudging of change, mm-hmm. right? So, um, later, uh, let's see. Oh, and then Paul finds a scrapbook of her clippings. These newspaper clippings that she had left out. I think it was a test to see if he was getting out. Right. Because I think she had an inkling, but if she's not there, and this is in the days before you could just wire your house for cameras. See Jessica Jones. Yeah, Uh, that was a good (laughs) plot that we just saw. uh, She, um, there's all these newspaper clippings where it's like the first in class 
it's like valedic valedictorian named valedictorian, you know, falls off cliff or something like that. Annie Wilkes named valedictorian. Like right. it's it's these things, and then it's a series of baby deaths, um, deaths in the pediatrics ward of a hospital or maybe in the NICU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the trial, uh, she was tried for the deaths of several infants, but the trial collapsed due to lack of evidence. And Annie had quoted lines from his misery novels during her trial. Now this is, there's a, a whole subplot going on that we haven't mentioned. Yeah, I was about to bring it in. Which, go ahead then. Well, okay, so... Um, at, right after he gets out and discovers this, Annie um, drugs Paul, drops him to the bed, and when he wakes up, she's like, oh, I saw that you found my scrapbook. I know mm. you've been out because my penguin always faces due south, and apparently he put his, her penguin back badly. And uh, she's like, well, this can't continue, so um, I'm going to do something to you that they... Was it that they used to do to slaves? It was uh, in the Kimberley Diamond Mines, which would be South Africa. Okay. And yes. So if they caught you stealing, they didn't want to keep you from being able to work, uh-huh. but they needed to do something to keep you from running away. And she hobbles him, and it's rough that she puts a a wooden block a wooden block his between his ankles, yeah. and then uses a sledgehammer on both sides to hit his feet to break all, right. all of all of that. So there's break a horrible, uh, slightly out of focus shot of his foot just sort of flopping over uselessly yep. to the left. Yeah. And she, does she do both of them? I think she, she does, does both, both of them. them. Yeah. yeah. Now, meanwhile, we've got Buster. Go for Buster. Buster is the local sheriff. Uh, he has gotten a call from Lauren Bacall, the literary agent, saying, look, he hasn't reached out to his daughter and it was her birthday he always keeps keeps us informed once he's finished a a book he's checked out of the lodge that he was in i think he's missing is there anything you can do and buster's like i mean i guess now buster is richard farnsworth who's the greatest that ever was (laughs) he's the best i love him so much and he works with his wife when they're in the truck together she's not his wife She's his deputy. So get your hand off my knee, woman. They have a very... It's great. (laughs) ...lovely relationship. Richard Farnsworth and Frances Sternhagen is this older couple And she is made up entirely for the book, or for the movie. And they are very much in love and very much infatuated with each other and still apparently very sexual well into old age. Yeah. They're in their, what, 70s probably? Yeah. And he's investigating, and he, he cannot find him right. and eventually his car is found and his body is nowhere to be around mm-hmm. and they, they, they don't find his body anywhere around and the sort of state sheriff is like well we're going to conclude that he's dead because mm-hmm. he he got out of his vehicle but he's nowhere near it so yeah he probably died and the and buster is like mm, i mean I'm not going to say anything because y'all aren't going to listen to me, but this door was pried open from the outside, which means somebody got him out of the car so he could be with someone. Because they're like, well, somebody, they would have called an ambulance or they would have, 
Well, they may not have, actually, it right. turns out. And so because he can't, he has no more clues to go on, he decides he's going to read all of the all of Paul Sheldon's novels. And so you just see him reading through these novels and talking to his wife about them randomly. Uh, and he... Finds a clip about Annie Wilkes. They they do a, a helicopter search to see if they can find the car before it's buried under snow at this point. Mm. And so we we see how far away the Wilkes farm is, which is where she is with him. And uh, but they nobody ever goes to any of these houses out here to ask anything. And uh, he does find the thing where she says the the quote there is a higher justice than that of man i will be judged by him it's a quote that misery does in one of her books or one of his books and it's what she says on the stand right so he's like hmm that's that's not a coincidence um and so he asks the shopkeeper you know does annie bought anything weird and they're like, just paper, if paper's weird. And he's like, like, I don't know what he said, like uh, newspaper. And he's right. like, no, 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 like like paper, paper. <laughs> and he's like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go check out that. And uh, Paul's been drugged and sort of pushed into the basement at this point when when Buster pulls up. And it's very close to him being killed. She yeah. now is carrying a thirty eight around with mm-hmm. her and talking about the final steps that have to be taken to ensure that they end their trip together. Yes. Which is really menacing. Yeah. And um he as Buster is going to leave, he runs upstairs to look around. He's looking around and because he, he's like, this isn't right, but he's not seeing anything out of whack. And she explains, you know, when I saw that he was missing, because she he says <laughs> he knocks on the door and he's like, Can you tell me anything about Paul Sheldon? And this bitch starts it with his biography. Well, he was born in such and such year to so and so and so and so. There's an Amelia Bedelia element. To yeah. That. And he's like, No, no, no. I I mean that's a lot of information that you have handy. But I mean, like recently, and she goes, oh, no, I know he was in an accident. And then, you know, God came to me and said I could pick up his work. And so I bought a typewriter, and I've been trying, but I just can't write like him. And it's just like this alibi for why this paper has been... set up in the room, why there's a typewriter there. Mm -hmm. She's very quick on her feet. She is. Uh, and this is the first time you see her being really, I mean, there's a... Th- calculating. Right, calculating. That was the word I wanted. Yes, because she seems not that sharp. Mm-hmm. But she's pretty... And she says horrible things. Well. Your work. What's the name of that Dago who painted the ceiling of that chapel? Oh, I, I was, that was the moment where right. I was like, I was like I'm sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, she's, she's not too bright, but she's shrewd when she needs to be. Yes. And I think that's an element that we forget until we find out the sort of sinister backstory that she really believed that she was appointed by God. She was an angel of mercy killer. The the herd for weak and sick children, apparently. Uh, And then 
Buster goes to leave, and uh, Paul is able to make enough noise in the basement that he mm. comes back. He opens the basement door and sees Paul, and then he is murdered. Um, a- he is, Buster is here playing Scatman Crothers' part yes. in The Shining. He is a shotgun is, blast to his torso. Which is really sad. It's very sad. His wife is going to be real, real And that's, upset. we never get to see the closure of that scene where, and maybe I don't want to see what happens to the wife when she finds out her husband got... I know. And we don't, we don't see and that. And it, it's, it's a real flash of gore. There are, there's not a lot of violence in the film compared to some of the other Stephen King's movies we've seen. But the violence is very intense and frequently really realistic. Yeah. And this is when it sort of gets mm-hmm. it up. Point on. So she's like, well, now we have to die together. And he's like, let me finish the story mm-hmm. so we you can give misery back to the world. And he's like, I'm 24 hours from done. Right. Like, I can be done in 24 hours. Because she now knows that this is the, the end game now. Yes. The sheriff's dead. They're going to be looking for him. Yeah. There's, yeah. She killed a law enforcement officer. Most of her crimes have been done on the sly. Yes, and this is and this overt. is now, yeah, yeah. Uh, when the manuscript is done, he asks for a single cigarette and a glass of Dom Perignon, because why wouldn't you? And this might also be his last drink. So what it's the hell? It's true. Uh, Go big. So Annie goes and gets it, and then as she leaves, he sets the manuscript on fire. Uh, she rushes in to save it, and he hits her with a typewriter, and then they fight violently. Now, I appreciated this fight because it was very, very, very realistic. There's no special moves, although he does. Um, he tries to shove the burning manuscript into her mouth, which is like, that's not, I mean, th- well, no, there's it's something poetical, that, but that it's I have not to say helpful. for it. Earlier in the film, and I'm saying this as a writer, the idea that someone pulls out your manuscript... Yeah, you were st- <laughs> uh, so upset. That was... That's so we know that he, does, he tries to bluff when she's burning his mm-hmm. first manuscript um, by saying, you know, my agent's got several copies that are all over the place now. I mean, I could burn it, but it's not right. going to take it out of the world. And he's like, she's like, you're superstitious and you never make copies. And I know because you said on such and such late night show at this time and right. whatever... Right, so, and, and, and it's true, it's she's right. She's just horribly obnoxious when yeah. she does things like that. She follows up, and her sense of moral outrage at the profanity, that's what she's objecting yeah. to. Could it's, we, but the murder of babies is... Is not a big deal they, for her, okay. which there's <laughs> they have lessons for our modern it's culture from this book. Like She can offer alternative facts as to why just, it's okay it's to murder wild, babies. Yeah. Right. So he hits her with a typewriter... Um, Which he's been working out with. There's scenes of him lifting the typewriter above his head to get yes, his strength back. Because he can't use his feet because they are very broken. And she gets up, steps forward to attack him, and he trips her, and she hits his head, her head on the typewriter. And uh-huh. he's like, oh, she's dead. And then he tries to crawl out of the room, and then, of course, she... Springs to life. Springs to life. Glenn Close style. Mm-hmm. And uh, attacks him again, and then... Paul grabs a statue and hits her in the head, and that is a wrap right. on Annie. And then we've got an 18-month time jump. Uh, Paul has a is walking with a cane, and he's meeting Lauren Bacall, I, his I'm surprised agent. he's walking with a cane or walking in any at way, all. shape, or form. Yeah, at all. no, I, I imagine if he is really that rich, he probably has some way of... 
I'm sure he's got physical therapy or and or all kinds of stuff. Legs, yeah. yeah. And uh, they are discussing the first post-misery novel, and there's positive early buzz. And Paul says he doesn't care. Uh, he wrote it for himself. And Marcia's like, um, so about all that shit that you went through, you wouldn't want to like write about that, would you? And he's okay. like, the hills doesn't know. And he says, um, I I think I see her all over the place, and you see her coming towards him with a cape. Uh-huh. And then as she gets there, it's somebody else, another brunette woman, uh, who says, I'm sorry, are you Paul Sheldon? I just need to tell you, um, I'm your number one fan. Oh, and he's God. like, that's very sweet of you. And then he goes and lives in the woods and never meets another brunette woman ever right. again. No fans. If I were him, I'd probably live in the city. I would never want to see woods or snow again. That might be I'd right. I'd move to Arizona and get an apartment in a high-rise where there's no uh, there's an assurance that everything can be brought to me that I need. And never, ever... Easier of course, now. I would kind of like that anyhow. Maybe, yes, if, let's know, do it. Let's, let's get an apartment and just, like, no one ever has to see anybody. Um, so that yeah. is that. Uh, William Goldman. Mm-hmm. I, have we talked about William Goldman on this show? No, we haven't talked about him much. William Goldman is a screenwriter and a playwright and a novelist. Uh, and should I say is or was? Doo, doo, doo. He is. Was. He died at the end of last year. That's right. He died in November of 2018. Uh, he is best known probably as a screenwriter. No, it's um, The Princess Bride, of course, right? Yes. And Butch Cassidy, was it? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance okay. Kid, The Princess Bride, All the President's Men. Those are sort of the big three. Mm-hmm. This one, which apparently was considered, quote, one of Stephen King's least adaptable novels, which I should, I feel like I want to read the novel again because I feel like he adapted the hell out of it. It's right. a very good adaptation. But yeah, William Goldman wrote The Princess Bride. Was that directed by... Uh, he wrote the novel The Princess Bride, and he wrote the screenplay. And it was directed by... Was it Rob Reiner? Okay, that's what, that was my question. Uh, so he and Rob Reiner worked a lot t- t- together. He's an interesting guy, too. I think that we you can't... And this sounds weird, but you can't underestimate his influence. When he wrote the screenplay for Butch Cassidy... If you watched it, and I'll try to get you to watch it at some point with me. I haven't watched it. It is a very modern screenplay. Okay. You know, the the people are not stuck in anachronistic jargon. They're not talking like they do in Westerns. They often have these zippy one-liners. They pop off to each other. It's very modern, and this is like the modern screenplay, the the embryonic stage of the way that we make movies now. Which is impressive, because it was his first screenplay. And he sold it for the highest price ever paid for an original screenplay at that time. $400,000 in 1960-something. 67, yeah, 68. We had to study that, uh, that screenplay for class because, again, it was the, the our screenplay writer felt the beginning of, you know, sharp retorts and funny dialogue and personal interplay and a lot of other stuff well, he really wrote became... magic. Right. That's a very odd movie with Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins and Margaret. And a ventriloquist dummy. And that movie scared the daylights out of me <laughs> as a kid. And I never saw it. I didn't see it until I saw it with you as an adult. 
I remember the trailer of it was just a a very stark black, dark background. It's fairly dark, and mm-hmm. then you just see the puppet's head talking to you. Yeah, and that. Scared the daylights out of me as a kid. So after William Goldman wrote this, he also wrote a play. Because this, as we were watching, I'm like, this could definitely Mm -hmm. be a play. And they made it into a play Um, last year. Was it last year? Or it was 20? Here's the problem with variety stories. They Mm -hmm. don't have dates, which is upsetting. Oh, no. Okay. 2015. The comments were in 2015, so that's how long ago it was. And I agree with half of the casting. Uh, it's basically a two-hander, mm-hmm. and it, they cast Laurie Metcalf and Bruce Willis. It did open on Broadway. This uh, says the eek factor is largely largely missing. Despite the physical in- intimacy imposed by its stage setting, his theatrical version of the novel novel lacks the stifling sense of claustrophobia that made Ryder's 1990 movie starring Kathy Bates and James Conn so unnerving. Or maybe the atmosphere of fear and dread was just wiped out by the show's undercurrents of arch humor. And I think that's a danger with the two that they right. cast. Uh, I ha- I think Lori Metcalf is an amazing actress, drama or comedy, but I am always prepared to laugh at her. Right. Because she is... Very funny. Very, very funny. And can say some shit that you don't think is a joke right. in a way where it's like... What's funny is from a person that I mean, we used to be, uh, me and my ex-wife also were fans of the old Roseanne. Yes. And not, not the new racist Roseanne, the old Roseanne. Well, the old Roseanne was also racist, but um, go ahead. But Laurie Metcalf's part in there. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, she, she was phenomenal in that There show. are lines that she said, not Roseanne's lines, her lines, that yes. we quoted each other all yes. the time because she was very quotable and very funny. I think a lot of her stuff was improvised. She was really a great actress. And and so, yeah, that would have been fun. I'm not sure about... She was nominated for the mm, Tony. I'm not sure... But she did not win. I would love to have seen Bruce Willis. He carries that... He can carry that kind of... It depends. It, it depends There's, on the director. Apparently, there are two Bruce Willises. Two Bruce Willi, mm. if you will. At one is uh, the Bruce Willis that appears uh, on on the set of a director that he doesn't have any respect uh-huh. for, whom he will shit all over. He will, sh- he will shit all over the director. He will shit all over the other performance performers. He will, uh, like, totally not show up when he's supposed to show up. Uh-huh. Making And, of course, he's the star, right? So everybody's days are off. It's He's a garbage person to work with. Uh-huh. Or he's pleasant. He's there. He's engaged. Right. It's one of those two. Or as I would like to say, M. Night Shyamalan's Bruce Willis, who never calls in a performance, who is always... Yeah. What, and I think yeah. the, the um, also uh, Ryan Johnson, who okay, directed yeah. Looper, yes. has never... He, he does... He, the, the Ryan Johnson Bruce Willis and the Kevin Smith Bruce Willis right. are two, two different totally people. different people. So, And I don't know what makes that distinction. I know that... It's his respect for the quote-unquote leader of the, f- of the film and whether mm. or not he thinks that it's a caliber that he right. is... Or, uh, yeah, I don't know. Whatever yeah. he thinks. If he thinks this is either... And, and he's never worked on a Kevin Smith film that was a Kevin Smith film. He's right. only worked on a Kevin Smith film 
that he Kevin Smith directed but did not write. So maybe he he holds writer directors in an esteem. Right. It could be. Where because he gave a very good performance of Quentin Tarantino as well. And it's a writer director. Writer director. So I'm wondering um, if that might be But there's I and I always there's a yardstick. I have always And used, these are all, you know, right. hearsay, hearsay, hearsay. But these, there's a yardstick I use. I have rarely seen a performance as good as Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. He's very good. As this incredibly physically strong but emotionally horribly fragile man mm-hmm. trying to get through life and win the respect of his son and the respect of his wife again. And that performance is heartbreaking. It really is probably to me his best work ever because it's just like you're, you're contrasting these two elements of this one character. But um, but yeah, I would have liked to have seen how the, that happened because, you know, as I said, I'm not a big fan of James Caan. I envy him right. something. I envy him the fact that he, for the last 20 years, has been a student of one of my heroes in martial arts, Suki, uh, Soke Takayuki Kobota. And he does sneak one karate move into Kathy Bates' face at right. that point during the fight You're scene. Like, ah, it's like, well, he pulled that one out it. because that's the one that doesn't look too obtrusive. But, um, okay. but, and that, that yeah, that whole, this whole film worked out really well, even though I'm not really big on him as a performer. Kathy Bates, I think, steals the movie. Yeah. And she was, um, and so does Richard Farnsworth for that matter. She came in third in the New York Critic Circle's Best Actress. Wow. Uh, she won the Academy Award and the Golden Globe Drama and the Chicago Film Critics Association Award, um, as well as the da- Dallas Fort Worth's. Film Critics Association Award. And then Goldman was nominated for the USC Scripter Award. And then it was nominated for a bunch of Saturn Awards, but didn't win any. Uh, So, yeah. So, well awarded. Very good. Not too long. Okay. The movie isn't too long. It's 107 minutes. Right. Well, I don't think you can do it. There's there's some films I like. At some point, something's got to give. We can't just do... This the, if I forever. put it, I would put it in the collection of films in like film plays, almost like you mentioned, in limited uh, locations that are only a few characters. This one in Death and the Maiden, Polanski's movie with uh, Ben Kingsley mm-hmm. and Sigourney Weaver, which was also two people trapped in a lighthouse and the weird insistency of the the light from the lighthouse occasionally rotating right into the room when you don't expect it, and Mm -hmm. it really ratchets up the tension in that movie. Um, This film reminded me a lot, and I'm sure that King, because he is an author who references other writers, he referenced uh, John Fowle's 1963 novel, The Collector, about a psychotic young man who kidnaps a beautiful student and keeps her locked in his room, and that novel's divide, or keeps her locked in his house. And that novel is divided into two parts, which is one from the point of view of the captor and one from the point of view of oh, the Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it got made into a film that uh, was really vilified by the English because it was in such bad taste. You know, kidnapping young women and Terrence Stamp was the kidnapper and Samantha Egger was the beautiful young... <laughs> he did a great job of playing a guy who was deeply disturbed enough that he really didn't realize the wrong that he was doing. And that's a hard one to pull off. So yeah. this film reminded me of that where I think Kathy Bates does a great job in this version of this story is how she just flies off the handle and you can kind of see it coming. And yeah. so you're you're flinching at times because... Because even when she's right. 
at peace, there's a tension to the way right. that Bates is playing her. Yeah. Where you're like, ooh, like she's buzzing. Yeah. Always. Even when it's, oh, good lordy. <laughs> like, right, well, and that's kind of what makes the part really sinister is the fact that there's all these ridiculous childish epithets that she shouts yeah. out, followed by really intense bouts of violence. Right. And also her real a fixation that she's doing the right thing. She believes that this is her holy mission and she's going to set him free from himself and she's going to do like a course correction for him. And this is basically how she goes through life, either murdering children or uh, pushing the head nurse off a cliff or whatever else yeah. she does. I bet this is a quick read too because I'm looking at the... I haven't read it. I read it... I have read it. Uh-huh. I read it when I was in my preteens. Okay, repeat that again, because I, I want the audience to understand where you were in your preteens. Should you have been reading this book? Oh. I mean, I, it's sure. Okay. It's not Gerald's Game. <laughs> Did you read Gerald's Game as a preteen? No, I wasn't allowed to read Gerald's Game till I was 16 years old. 14. Till I was 14 years old. Sweet Jesus. Yeah, I read it when I was 14, and I wished I was older. Right. <laughs> uh so part one is called Annie, and it has 36 chapters in it. Part two is called Misery, mm-hmm. and it has 23 chapters in it. Part three is called Paul, and it has 48 chapters. And then uh, part four is called Goddess, and it's called and it has 12 chapters in it. So each of these chapters is less than 10 pages. Right. Probably less than five. They're very brief, so you can it feels like you're moving through the book. At quite a clip. Uh, yeah, the movie's real good though. Right. It's on. We watched it on Voodoo. Voodoo. It's a channel on yeah. Roku. Voodoo, apparently, you do so well. There were ads. Yeah, but it's okay. Well, it was I free. like the fact that you didn't seem to edit the film. Yeah, no, it seemed like we Which, got we we all got of the it. full. There was know. swears, and murders. Yeah. So, so we and, and I we, presume and the mutilations seem to be intact. We got the full mutilation. By the way, the makeup job and jobs in this film, um, that Quite first good. reveal when they when he comes of out his of the car is just <laughs> horrible. Uh, horrible. I had a friend who was a car accident victim in an accident that sadly we lost one of our mutual friends in. Um, and I remember going to visit him in the hospital, and this is what he looked like. That was a very... Just it, it in was, traction and... Right. Yeah. It was uncomfortably realistic, that scene where she draws down the sheets and you get to see what his body looks like. But um, Yeah. But yes, a, a good film. This is a good film. This and good film. a real um, jump up in quality from the Stephen King films we've been watching lately. Yes. So, now, next week, mm-hmm. and... The week after, <laughs> we're going to watch It, the it. 1990 television adaptation uh-huh. of It. And we're going to watch part one, and then we're going to watch part two. Yes. I'm really curious as to your feelings about this, because I know that it was made for television. Yes. And We bought it. I bought a DVD set that has uh-huh. this and... The Langoliers or something. Oh... Maybe the Langoliers and sometimes they come back or the Golden Years. Right. Like maybe the Golden Years. And then I got another one with the Shining TV movie and the Stand. 
Which we needed to see, and too. And Secret Window, or something like that. It was like... Secret Window? Oh, my oh, God. Oh, and the 2004 Salem's Lot. Yeah, so I bought two DVD sets that have all of these things that are trickier to find. And, uh, you know, it was like seven ninety nine for three of them. And I was like, well, that seems better than paying for each one individually. <laughs> so uh, that's where... That is, and so we will be doing it. We're doing it. Right. So we're going to now go back to Derry, is it? Or is it uh, Castle Rock? I think it's Derry. Derry. And no more Thomas Kincaid landscapes like we got this time. No. Well, uh, that I have to say. It starts with rain, so I can tell you Quentin Tarantino, all right? Okay, what are we doing? Quentin Tarantino, this is how you shoot a film. Watch Rob Reiner, Okay. Don't shoot a Western in 70 millimeter and set it in one room. Oh, yeah. All right? No. It's really... What you do is, <laughs> if you do that, make sure to have plenty of shots from the outside so we can see what 70 millimeter looks like for those of us... Well, when you're introducing it to a generation of people who have not seen it before. Uh, I thought this film really surpassed The Hateful Eight on the idea of you open up a movie like this so that you can see how beautiful the outside is and look at our cinematography. So... <laughs> Yeah, it was very pretty. Um, really, and that's why I said the Thomas Kincaid landscapes, the snowy banks, the, the, the fogging breath, the uh, characters really looked like they were part of their landscape, uh, the rough-hewn face of Richard Farnsworth. Who, y'all, Richard Farnsworth, if you don't know who this is, mm-hmm. he played Matthew in Matthew the Cuthbert. original... Uh, is it movies or TV thing? He did the television miniseries Anne of Green Gables and Megan Gables. Follows. Yes. And and another alumni for Stephen King movies, a Colleen Dewhurst. Colleen Dewhurst. Uh, yeah. Who was the stunt cast mom in Dead Zone. That was obviously a piece of stunt casting. Wow, she's in the movie for five minutes or three uh, lines or something. But, um, but yeah, and he was a former stuntman who got more and more on-screen parts because his face just became more rugged and interesting as he got older. He's also genuinely a good actor. Yes, he is. Also, he seemed like the sweetest man that ever did live. He's very understated in his performances, and that's what works in his favor. He feels completely natural. And that, that, that works, especially when he's doing westerns and things where you're just sort of having to accept him as him. Yeah. And when I started seeing his performances and things like The Natural and The Gray Fox, and the, he was just really good. And um, here's a bit of sad news. His mm-hmm. last film was a movie where he had to ride a tractor, like mm-hmm. a cross-country. Right, there was a David Lynch movie. Uh, oh, Yeah. The non-Lynchian David right. Lynch, maybe the only David Lynch movie. The Straight movie Story, I sh- was it called? The Straight Story, right. yes. Right. And while they were recording it, um, he was, I believe, yeah, he had metastatic um, prostate cancer and was uh-huh. in terrible pain. Oh, that's a pity. Guys, this is the bummer. Uh, and he ended up uh, killing himself, shooting himself. Uh-huh. Um, he wasn't he was done. There right. was nothing else that could be done for his illness, and he was in agonizing pain, and so he ended it on his own terms. Uh, Which must have been something. He's physically, like I said, he was a stuntman. His son's a stuntman. Mm-hmm. Um, he he physically... And he was 80 years old. Right. His wife had died uh-huh. 15 years beforehand. He was, you know, 
He was very kind of... Uh, I, uh, there's a, a Western that I'm really fond of, even though it's kind of problematic, a movie called The Professionals, which is one of, the, like The Magnificent Seven in a way, it's one of these big stunt casting movies, Lee Marvin, Burt Lancaster, Woody Strode, and uh, Robert Ryan playing these cowboys going into the rescue a stolen uh, a woman who's been stolen and kidnapped and taken to Mexico. And there's all sorts of twists to the plot. But apparently Richard Farnsworth's part was to teach Woody Strode how to use a bow and arrow. And in Woody Strode's biographies, there's a couple of funny stories about them sort of painting the town red because mm. they were out in the desert and there was nothing else to do but And he was it. like a real cowboy. Right. He did the horse work, the, the right. arrow, the bows and arrows, the yeah. lasso work. He did. He he did all of that. Which and is then very funny. When he stopped doing that, he was in front of the... Right. Because that physically takes a toll on you, and then somebody just realized, God, his face is fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. he has a very honest voice. And, and I think he was also a joy to work with. Right. So, Which is the, the kind of stories that get passed on about him, that he was just a really nice guy. Yeah. Um, so anything you could watch with Richard Farnsworth mm-hmm. in it, watch it, because he's wonderful. Uh, yeah. He started stunting in 1937. Wow. He was born in 1920, so I don't know that he was legal to work. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, different in 1937, right. but yeah, he started, his first thing was as a jockey in a day at the races. So... So, this week, do you have anything to recommend? Do I have anything to recommend? I don't know. My recommendation is for the thing I'm going to see tomorrow. Oh, no, it's a, it's it's a, a pre-recommend. Pre-recommend. Yeah, I'm going to see The Farewell. I'm going to cry like a baby for two hours. Look out, I'm going to be dehydrated. Uh, this is a movie with Aquafina based on a real-life story of a young woman who goes to China to celebrate, ostensibly celebrate, her cousin's wedding, but it's really to, for the family to say goodbye to a grandmother with that's terminally ill who does not know she's terminally ill because that is not in the purview of the doctor to tell her. It's up to the family, and the right. family has opted not to do that, and she's like, uh, this seems wrong and bad. It's very much the difference between the way that we see things yep. in Western, Western culture and Eastern versus culture. Eastern right. culture. Yeah, and that's... And it's a very interesting in the movie. explanation, which is the idea that in Western culture we put a lot of emphasis on the, the scientific self. process. Oh, okay. And in Eastern culture they put a lot of emphasis on your frame of mind. So well, their yeah, idea but it's, is if it's, you think you're going to die, it's going to hasten you on. So I'm pre-saying uh, that mm. this movie that's got like 99% on Rotten Tomatoes is a movie you should go see. Also, largely Asian cast, Asian right. writer and director... Yeah, go see films that are not made by white people because there's plenty of films that are made by white people. Right. You don't need to watch. Well, we've seen that story. those. We've seen those stories, I think. And what do you want to recommend this week? Um, I don't have necessarily a, a movie or a TV show. <sighs> I will recommend seeing the end of the... We've just finished uh, season three of Jessica Jones, which is in all likelihood, going to be the final season, which is a huge pity because oh, I really... Oh, it's definitely going to be the whole, Yeah. They've already said. It's, it's, um, it was a really good program, and it was a solid three seasons of really good work. And I'm going to miss a lot of the Marvel stuff that was done for Netflix. There was yeah, good, the Defenders were all The Defenders was his, great. just lovely. I love the interplay between the characters, even the guy that I didn't quite like for Iron Fist. 
when he was amongst the other characters, he did really well. He worked well in his own. Yeah, and everything after his first series Mm -hmm. was better. He did better. So, but um, if I was going to say something, I'm just to weigh in really quickly. There's a really interesting article uh, by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Bruce Lee. Okay. And if you can find that article, and it's about the recent controversy with Quentin Tarantino's really kind of odious depiction of Bruce Lee. Yeah. In his film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hey, you want to hear our hot takes on Quentin Tarantino? Should we do a hot takes on Quentin Tarantino? Go ahead. Do a hot take. So, I have never been a Quentin Tarantino fan. I have seen several of his movies and not seen several other mm-hmm. of his movies. Probably the ones I would like the most I have not seen, which are the Kill Bill volumes right. 1 and 2. I used to just be like, you know, he makes movies that aren't for me and that's fine. Right. Uh, and I think that the filmmaker that made Reservoir Dogs, that scrappy indie filmmaker who's just making a movie because he right. wants to make it and he got by on the, is very different than the one who made this most recent movie with its huge budget and huge stars. So I, I can't give him the benefit of the scrappy doubt anymore. Yeah. This is a white man who objectifies women to a degree that is unsettling. Uh, I don't care that he has a foot fetish. I just wish I didn't know that he had a foot fetish because it's none of my business. But he has not allowed me as a viewer of his films to not know this about him, and I find that problematic. Second, he appears to have gotten the okay to go ahead and just use wildly offensive racial language in his films. Like, somebody told him he could use the N-word if he wanted, and he does. Never stopped using it. And he does it all of the time, like as a a point of pride, uh, which I don't... Why are why is this allowed? Why is this okay? Why are we okay with this? It's not allowed. You, it is a free country. Say whatever you want. Why are we okay with it? Mm. And finally, that one thing of I want to use the N word. Is it cool? Hey Samuel L. Jackson, is it cool if I use the N word? Mm. And Sam Jackson, I guess, was like, "Fucking do what you want. You're a grown ass mm. man." Uh, has now deeply infiltrated the racial dynamics of his films to a disturbing degree. Like, the hero of Django Unchained is not Django. Django kills the black villain. Christoph Waltz, the white character, takes out the white villain. We've got a white woman taking out multiple Asian... Right, in Kill Bill. Asian people in Kill Bill. Um... And then in this movie, he makes Bruce Lee a caricature of himself while using his real name Mm -hmm. and putting him in a position that there's no way he would ever be in and then Mm -hmm. lies about why he did it. Right. And so that's that's kind of why my thing is I've been a martial artist for 35 years. Uh, I remember growing up watching... A martial artist from Oakland. Right. So... 
So, Marshall Schmokel, so when I was a, a preteen, I actually met some of the people that were in Bruce Lee's Oakland group. And they spoke really highly of him and how crazy skilled he was. And this is before the period that he even went to Hollywood, right? This is when he was working in Oakland. Right. Um, but I've been martial arts for a long time, and I grew up watching a lot of, oh, The A-Team or MacGyver, or a lot of shows where the white hero typically ducks endless karate kicks and then just throws a cowboy punch and knocks a guy right. out. Right. Um, because there's a dynamic where Asian men aren't seen as a threat, or or they are seen as a threat, really. So we have to show that their stuff doesn't work yeah. and that they're not equal to a white guy who's rolled off a couch. Right. You know, and, so, and we have to also keep, mm. let's take all of Hollywood context, which is right. Asian men can either be the the person who beats up white people mm-hmm. or the person who has sex with women. Right. You can't be both. Hey, guys, they're both right. of those things. And so in recent years, there's been a real weird dynamic where there's a lot of criticism of Bruce Lee that's come from people who never lived around to meet him or never got to meet him. Um, most recently, there was a movie called Birth of the Dragon that completely distorted his life and basically made up a false story. It's called The Birth of the Dragon, which is the story of Bruce Lee, but it's really about a young white man who falls in love with an Asian woman and this Chinese master who comes to humble Bruce Lee and teach him Kung Fu, which is in no way what really happened because I actually know some of the principles right, that were right, involved right, in the story. Right. Um, but this seemed to be an extension of that, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a really interesting letter uh, um, about having worked with Bruce Lee, uh-huh. because they did a film together that yeah. never got made, unfortunately, or never got finished, uh, and how he worked with him, and he'd been his friend, and said that the guy that you're seeing in Quentin Tarantino's movie is not the guy I remember. He was not a guy who picked on anybody. Mm-hmm. He had personally seen him turn down fights with the people, because he's like, I don't need to do this. He was a person who struggled very hard because the only other regular Asian actor in Hollywood at the time that he was doing The Green Hornet, which is supposedly when Tarantino's film was set, the only other Asian actor working steadily on television was a boy called Hey Boy on the TV show Paladin, followed by... Hey Paladin. Yeah. (laughs) Followed by uh, Hop Singh, the Chinese Mm -hmm. cook on Bonanza, who was there exclusively to be made fun of with... Uh, and with a really heavy accent played by Benson Fong, who also was a Shakespearean actor, but he had to speak broken or pigeon and be the butt of all the jokes on that show. So it's interesting the dynamic that makes Bruce Lee still a threat to you Yeah. 40 years later after he's dead. I just, right. Quentin Tarantino couches his misogyny and bigotry right. in... But I love the source stuff, and it's mm-hmm. an homage, and I'm 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 d- I'm done with it. Right, you're a grown ass man. And this is part of what happened recently is that he's gotten into a war a war of words with Shannon Lee, uh, Bruce Lee's daughter, and at one point he's doubling down both on his treatment of Sharon Tate in the film, which is problematic, and also his treatment of Bruce Lee by claiming citations from Linda Lee, uh, Bruce's widow. Mm-hmm about his character on set, and then completely misquoting that. Anybody mm-hmm. can open the book and find out that Quentin Tarantino is basically um, not telling the truth, which led to Shannon Lee telling him, just shut up. Like, you're making it worse. But this particular article by uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, if you can find it, I'm sure it's online everywhere now, it really is very open with, this is Tarantino's motives. You're, this kind of emasculation of Chinese men or Asian mm-hmm. men is a really old tradition in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's revolting that in this day and age you're perpetuating mm-hmm. it. 
And also, you are defaming a person who really struggled very hard. Yeah. To and to be like, well, he, he was. was vain. Well, no, he was confident. And right. if he if he was a white person, exactly, it's just like a, a woman is a bitch if she's assertive. Well, the, it's the same kind one of... One of the, the first statements that Tarantino made was, well, if I wanted to show how much of a badass my fictional character is, he had to fight Bruce Lee or James Brown, which is telling that there's only an Asian guy and a black guy. There's not a white dude right. that you could have? It's Charles like Bronson Charles you brought Bronson up. I brought up. Charles Bronson was working at the time. He had been a professional boxer. Uh, James Coburn was a martial arts student. Um, there, uh, but even, my white guy needs to prove right. himself by beating up a person of color. Right. To keep it real. Uh, yeah. Whatever, dude. Like, I'm. if you like his stuff, cool, cool, cool. But, but I, it's like I've reached a point now where I'm like, this, this is indefensible, but he keeps doubling down on yeah. it. Yeah. It's like he, so. he gets a little, and mm. then, yeah, like, the treatment of the one woman uh-huh. in The Hateful Eight, the hateful eight is... To be perpetually beaten up, all and then to find out that he's—it's his hands that are choking her. Right. Like nobody sees a fucking problem with this. Right. I, that's that's. Like, I, I don't know the the extent or the leeway that we give to creative people, but I don't think that would be an issue if he was unsuccessful. The fact right. that he's successful is what makes it that everyone's. Well, kind and of once again, at, have you know him being mm. a scrappy indie filmmaker and making Reservoir Dogs and right. making the film he wanted to make? That's fine. That's well uh-huh. and good. He just made a very high budget m- movie with the most famous people in Hollywood. So he's not a scrappy upcoming anything. Mm-hmm. He is a person who can make whatever movie he makes. He gets whatever funding he right. needs to get. And he's making and also, misogynistic, racist stuff. The fact that, as, as we've talked about too, the Bruce Lee scene apparently is four minutes out of the movie or something. Yeah, and it's prominent to that trailer. It's very prominent in the trailer because he knew that he could, and this is what Shannon Lee The Liam same thing was. with the Sharon Tate stuff. Right. He knew that he could sell the movie on Bruce Lee and Sharon Tate. Yeah. And not the sort of story of these two losers palling through Hollywood. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so that, it's like yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, finds letter, read it. It's very interesting. It talks a lot about, uh, from a person who actually knew Lee and was yeah. there, the difference between the depiction in a movie from a guy who basically rewrites history regularly yeah. to fit into his stories, his bizarre, yeah. cr- cranked-up stories, and a person who was actually there at the time who could tell you, no, this is what it was really yeah. like, and this person's being defamed and yeah. made to look bad. Yeah, and, and, the, and the, yeah, just Quentin Tarantino, if you just take out all of mm-hmm. the fucking, that was cool, aspects of his films mm-hmm. and just look... At the building blocks, they're fucking problematic well, as hell, and uh, I, I, I'm just—it's—it's it's exhausting. He's to a me. very highly derivative filmmaker. Well, yes, but he couches that in. Right. I'm making an homage. Yeah, Once again, I'm just like, but if I want to see, you're doing shot for shot shit of right. stuff that, like, right? Why you, should I be paying twenty dollars to go to see your movie? You're not Sergio Leone. And you never will be. That's kind of one of the things I want to tell him. He's not Mario Bava doing high school. But he movies. also will put himself in... That's the other thing, yeah. is he will cast himself in, as an actor next to actor. very good actors, right. which only makes him look like... Yes. I'm sure he could be a serviceable actor among other serviceable yes, actors, but, when you're in a scene but he's not doing... Samuel Jackson, John Travolta, and Harvey Keitel. You are going to look like a adult. One of these things does not belong here. <laughs> Right, so you look like the dude that cast this movie, and so right. you put yourself in this movie, yeah. and it's like, 
It's, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I just, I, he's I not my turn. I my point with him, too, where I'm like, yeah, I, I can't. And even... I mean, w- yes, we're two people sitting in the living room talking about him. He's going to be fine. Right. Uh, but I just, I, I, I don't know, Think just think about it a little. Right. I just, you know. And find that letter. That's what I was recommending. Read that letter. It's interesting because it's it's from a person who was actually there, not a person who's remembering it or basing it on books he half remembers and misquotes. I'm going to see if I can tell people where they can find it. Mm-hmm. It's The Hollywood Reporter. Okay. Uh, you can just Google Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Bruce Lee, and it's the first thing that comes up. The title uh, is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Bruce Lee was my friend in Tarantino's movie Disrespects Him. And uh, it was published uh, 8-16-19 by one Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So. Very, and he's a good writer too. I was yeah. reading it, going, "Wow, he." Well, he's, he's written books. Right? So. <laughs> no, he cho- he chooses really effective mm-hmm. sentences, and I'm every not, time I hear him. That's not condescending in any way. No, no, no. no. I mean, it's like a he's really, really choice. He's a fascinating man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was a pr- on The Apprentice, a celebrity apprentice. Mm-hmm. But that's the first time I saw him outside of a basketball mm-hmm. you know, framework, and he's a very thoughtful. Right person who has really interesting ideas and, and thoughts as we on things, yeah. which it was nice to see. I mean, don't watch The Apprentice, but seek out his other right. stuff because he's an interesting person outside right. of the basketball that he's And he had a music label for. for jazz, right? That doesn't but, surprise me. Yeah, I don't he, know, maybe. He's just a very interesting guy. Yeah. So that's, we also recommend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. There we go. <laughs> So, all right, that brings us to the end, I think. We've now given you our hot takes on Quentin Tarantino and talked about misery. And we're an hour and a half in. That's enough. Next week, it with John Ritter. Oh, John Ritter. And lots of other people. Lots of other people, but I just know the John Ritter thing. And special effects that probably do not age well. And we're going to watch part one. We're going to split it into two episodes. So we're going to just watch part one. What will happen? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, want to let us know anything, like how you don't appreciate our Quentin Tar- Tarantino hot takes, and once again, he's free to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, think about it. Racism's not cute, and it's in too many places. Uh, then you can reach us on Gmail, uh, latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at latecomerspod. You can reach us on Facebook. Latecomers Podcast. I remind you to take your medicine and we remind you better, better late than, than never. never.